Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season two. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Today, I'm joined by Terry Gentry. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we always like to start, you know, kind of at the beginning. And uh, I just wanted to uh, spend a few minutes getting going, telling folks about your family's rich history in the area of Denver, because we're going to talk about some of the other interesting folks that you've uh, discovered and met over the years. But how did your family end up in Denver? Well, on my, my dad's side, His grandfather is the first black licensed dentist in Colorado. His name is Dr. Thomas Ernest McLean, and he came from Nashville. He went to Harry Medical School and came out here in 1906 and started his dental practice in 1907, February 1907, and went back and married my great-grandmother May 26, 1907, and moved back here. Then they had twin daughters, Josephine and Ernestine McLean, the McLean twins, or I should say Ernestine and Josephine, because Ernestine was two minutes older. Ernestine is my grandmother. And then my dad is Charles Thomas Smith. He goes by C.T. Smith. And then I'm the oldest of three daughters to him and Anna McLuster. And then on my mom's side, the McLuster side, my great-great-grandparents worked for a white family in Nashville. And the white family moved out here, and they moved out here with them. And in 1903, and then my great 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 grandmother joined them later on. So we go back several generations, both sides of the family. So great great grandparents arrived here with their daughter, my great grandmother, and then my grandmother Goldie McLuster married to William J. McLuster, and they had 10 children. And one of their children, Anna McLuster, is my mom. So we have this rich history. I think of myself as a member of a bigger family here. Those are two sides of my family, but all of the other folks that my great-grandparents and grandparents celebrated their lives with, we go back four generations in some cases. So I feel like I have three three or 4,000 cousins in Denver because our, our families go back so many generations and we're still part of each other's lives. That's amazing. I mean, just to have that sense of both history and community is pretty fantastic. So with all of that, I mean, even just listening to you rattle off the dates, I mean, you have all this top of mind, right? Um, Do you just kind of have a knack for kind of, you know, remembering dates and, and kind of how it all ties into weave into, you know, understanding our history? Sometimes the, the dates jump off the page. They do. And sometimes the names jump off the page. I I guess I surprise people sometimes when I'm rattling the names off, but the reason I can do that is because they're an integral part of my life. So if we're talking about Dr. Justina Ford, who's the first black woman licensed physician in Colorado, her, her niece and great nephew were part of my family, called her niece Aunt Maude and called her great nephew cousin Jean. And we're not related by blood, but we're still family. Or if I mention some of the other folks like George Morrison, who was a classically trained concert violinist, 
and it was one of the cornerstones of our jazz history in the Five Points neighborhood. His great granddaughter and I are in the same sorority chapter and his granddaughter and I modeled with my grandmother when we were teenagers. So again, we go back three or four generations. Or if we talk about Dr. Joseph Henry Peter Westbrook who infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan here in Denver, he was my great grandfather's best friend and he also he and his wife, Mildred, were my grandmother and great aunt's godparents. Or if wow. we talk about Dr. Clarence Holmes, who was a catalyst in a change agent here. He was also a dentist, and he was really tight with my great-grandfather. He's also the charter member, founding member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity here in Denver. He was a founding member of the NAACP here in Denver and several other agencies and organizations, and he made such a major impact, but he's still... I could consider him a great uncle. You know, so that's how I relate to a lot of these folks in their own lives. They've made it these incredible impacts on our community and made such a difference. But how they're interconnected with my family, they they're part of my family and, and I feel like they're my ancestors and I'm humbled to honor them when I talk about them through the museum or through other resources. Yeah, no, that's great. I want to come back to some of those individuals. First, for folks, including myself, who aren't familiar with the Denver area, when you talk about different neighborhoods, give us uh, kind of paint the picture so we understand kind of the key neighborhoods or the layout of the city. Denver was founded at the confluence of Cherry Creek and Platte River in 1858 and grew in a northeasterly direction. And in the late 1870s, as it continued to grow northeast, from about 20th Street northeast, there is the neighborhood called Five Points. And the reason it it got that name was because the rest of Denver was set up on a northeast, west, south grid. And as this neighborhood continued to grow northeast, it created these weird corners. And they had a trolley run down Welton Street in the 1890s. And one of the corners they stopped at was at that northeasterly direction with the northeast, west, south grid. So it created five corners. And instead of them putting all the names of the street on the marquee, they called it five points. And a lot of people resisted because it was a neighborhood in New York City that had quite a reputation. So, but the name stuck, and now we're the Five Points Historic District in Denver. And in the 19th, after the turn of the century, we had quite a marked increase of African Americans move into this neighborhood. A lot of the men worked on the trains as porters and waiters. So we had this, this market increase of folks coming in and there were a lot of industrial jobs not far from this neighborhood as well. And so I'd like to honor my grandfather, George Washington Smith Jr., who was a waiter on Union Pacific Railroad. He was also military. I'd like to honor that as well in, in World War II. So he's part of that community here. And as they, they moved into the Five Points neighborhood, a lot of other things started developing, including small businesses and, and other things happening. So we got the reputation in this neighborhood of having the most incredible jazz stories west of Harlem, New York. So we were called Harlem of the West. So there were a lot of incredible places, New York, Chicago, Denver, Colorado, and then you get out to the West Coast. So we surprised folks with this, this rich history. And there's, there's a number of folks Beatty Hobbs and George Morrison and all of these other people, part of this story here. We still have Charlie Burrell, who's 
turned 100 years old on October 4th. So I'm going to give you that as a homework assignment to look him up because the brother is fierce okay. and, and such a major impact in our community. And his cousin and his niece are all these incredible jazz vocalists. His, his niece is Diane Reeves. She's a world-renowned jazz vocalist. His, his cousin is Dean, who's this incredible jazz pianist. And then Diane Reeves was related to Hattie McDaniel, who was the first black woman to win an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Gone with the Wind in 1940. And Hattie McDaniel's family grew up, in, she was born in Wichita and then lived up in Fort Collins and then moved down here to Denver and graduated from East High School here in Denver. She's part of this story here. She, she performed with George Morrison for a couple of years before she went to California. So you can tell I get excited about all of this rich, incredible history we have and all these stories we have. And I can continue to keep linking them together, the jazz history, and then eventually we have families moving east of what uh, our street is called Downing Street that divides five points from the Whittier neighborhood. And as we push that boundary, we met with a lot of challenges, like George Morrison's basement was burned out. My great-grandfather had a cross burned on his front lawn and had to leave that home and move and then eventually moved to 2538 Marion Street, where he was the first black, they were the first black family on the block, and he had to walk up the alley to come to his house. He couldn't walk up the street. And so many other families, a lot of these kids that I grew up with, uh, well, I won't say how old I am now, but a lot of these children can tell me stories about their grandparents' experiences in this neighborhood and in the Whittier neighborhood. Our first black fire chief, Rod Janelle, his incredible stories with his family. My dad was a division chief of the Denver Police Department and, and some of the other black police officers and their experiences here. As far as my, my uncle Frank, he was one of the first black managers at public service company. And he had enough and he, he retired early and, and left. And my mom's experiences at Martin Marietta in the 60s. And my grandmother, Ernestine McLean Smith, and her experiences with the city and county of Denver, she had a lot of highs and lows, and but an incredibly rich history teaching dance for 40 years to, to students from every walk of life. And some of the other kids, the kids that I grew up with in the neighborhood and sitting and listening to some of the stories that their families had to experience I am so humbled to be here and to talk about that. Just, just no, that's fantastic. Now, I, I want to come back to some of the specific stories, but a couple things. First, on arts and specifically jazz, what do you think it was that um, really helped foster a, an environment where all this great work and creative talent um, was able to thrive in Denver that you know we didn't see elsewhere? I think it was just the perfect storm of folks moving to Colorado to get away from other issues. Uh, some, of the, some of the families here were trying to leave the Jim Crow South and create a new way of life for their families. And with that, they brought children that were, you know, they were trying to give these children all kinds of experiences. So we have some amazing jazz artists in the Five Points neighborhood that continue to perform week in and week out. And then you had a lot of the artists from other parts of the country, like Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton and 
Billie Holiday and Count Basie and other members that, that were invited out here a lot to perform. George Morrison was not allowed to play in, the, in, in any orchestras and he was a classically trained concert violinist, so he started his own band and then his band traveled around the United States a lot to New York and Chicago and California and then neighboring states. And he got to know really well a lot of the performers and artists around the country. So inviting them back to hang out in Denver with some of the local musicians became part of the norm. They weren't allowed to stay in any of the hotels downtown. They could stay at the Rossonian, but a lot of these artists stayed in George Morrison's home when they came to visit. And George Morrison, for example, introduced my grandmother and my great aunt who were uh, dancers to Bill Bojangles Robinson. And so they performed at Lou Leslie's Blackbirds, A Small Paradise in 1932 in New York. And my grandmother and great aunt performed in a lot of, a lot of things in Harlem, New York. And so there was a New York, Colorado connection with a lot of the musicians and artists that were here as well as their movement around the country, making a name for themselves. But when you're in an oppressive situation and you're trying to find a new way to make a make your life better, a lot of folks came up. People were surprised. A lot of folks were headed to California and, and this was a good pit stop to make. They stopped and they created a life here. A lot of them were surprised at, at how much energy we have invested in our community. And then the railroads coming through here gave another opportunity for a lot of black families to move into this community as well. So a lot of different things, you had black cowboys. And so we're kind of in the middle of the country and, and farmers and ranchers and cow hands and other, other industries, this was a good place to come with some of the industrial things that we had going on in this, this area as well. Yeah, I um, grew up uh, much of my life in Arizona, and so the concept of you know black and brown cowboys is something that I'm I'm familiar with, but we don't see a lot or hear a lot about. Why do you think that is? Is that just uh, you know yet another part of the narrative that doesn't get told, or other reasons? That's a big part of it. When you go back and you look in the 1930s and 40s at some of the movies and some of the media, we were invisible. We did not exist. And when you start recording some of the stories of the military and the cowboys and ranchers and farmers, you discover there's so much rich history that was intentionally diminished. And there are a few folks such as Paul Stewart, who was the founder of the Black American West Museum. He went out and talked to families all over the West. He discovered almost one in three cowboys was black. And when you understand the history of slavery and Texas and, and Mexico, and you know that's a whole other narrative I could give you about that history, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, and, and Texas trying to secede from Mexico and then becoming part of the United States. And you look at, at Mexico as, as a starting ranching and, and cattle ranching in the 1500s, and then People that were enslaved managed all the herds and managed the cattle. So we're a combination of Mexican cowboys and black cowboys and European immigrants. We're all part of that story. Unfortunately, in every media form in the United States since along the last century, we're not part of the mainstream narrative. 
only in more recent times do you start seeing an acknowledgement of that, but that's because we're fighting for that to be part of the narrative of the of the United States and the stories. So as long as we continue to stand up for our part in this history and the stories, some point we'll get all of that that narrative on the table. But it's it's a hard process. It's a yeah, tough absolutely. long road. You had mentioned, you know, certain families during the this migration period that brought a lot of the folks to the Denver community um, were trying to get away from the Jim Crow South. At the same time, you had mentioned that, you know, this individual who had infiltrated the the clan there. So clearly there was still, you know, things to, to tackle even in that area. Tell me more about that story. Who was this person and uh, kind of what was the, the purpose of trying to infiltrate the clan? Dr. Joseph Henry Peter Westbrook was born in Hernando, Mississippi, and he went to Meharry Medical School with my great-grandfather. That's where they met, and they became best friends. And Dr. Westbrook suggested moving to Colorado because of possible opportunities. So Dr. Westbrook arrived first, and then my great-grandfather arrived a few months later. And during the course of their, their lives, especially in the early 20s, the Klan really exploded. It, it, we've had Ku Klux Klan memberships in Colorado all along. We became a state after we became a state, which was 1876. But you saw a rapid and marked increase of memberships during the after 1900, so the 19-teens and 1920s, and especially with our population increasing in this neighborhood, we probably exploded to about four or 5,000 Black folks in this neighborhood. And, but they were equal opportunity oppressor. They didn't like anybody. They didn't like black folks, Latino folks, Jewish, didn't like any, anybody. So all of us were uh, a reason for them to continue to try to oppress our increase in growth and transition. And our mayor ran on the Ku Klux Klan platform in the 1920s, Mayor Stapleton. And we also had members of the Klan in our state representative's office, our governor's office. So our membership in the Ku Klux Klan exceeded 50,000 during the 1920s. We were second to Indiana. And it was a tough way to live. And my great-grandfather had an office for a brief time down in the Kittredge building at 16th and Glenarm Place. And that was a threatening place to be on the main, on 16th Street. But we've got pictures. I'll have to send you a book that we have that shows pictures of them marching down Larimer Street or 16th Street. And every way of life was threatened. And every, every possibility was challenged for you to advance your life and to move your life and to, and to raise your family and take care of your family. And, and segregation and isolation and all of these different things happening as a result of the things that, you know, the intentional oppression that continued and the threats that continued. So Dr. Westbrook is very, very fair-skinned and he went into meet, went into their meetings. They didn't know he was black. My grandmother said that they got wind of somebody trying to infiltrate the Klan while Dr. Westbrook was sitting in the meeting and they didn't know it was him, they devised a plan talking about what they were going to do when they found out 
who it was that was trying to infiltrate, but they never found out about Dr. Westbrook. And my grandmother said he had to live with a, a gun. He kept a shotgun loaded in his office and one in his home just in case. And she believes that he had a shorter lifespan. He died 10 years before my great grandfather just because of the stress that it impacted on him. He was quite the civil rights activist and he was constantly working on change. All of these men, Dr. Westbrook, Dr. Clarence Holm, my great grandfather, and there were several other men that were part of the Boule Sigma Pi Phi fraternity here in Denver. I've got a picture from 1921 and those men protected Dr. Westbrook's identity as he infiltrated Ku Klux Klan. They made sure not a lot of folks could know that because somebody could slip and tell somebody else what he was doing. So they fiercely protected his identity and continued to, to actively protect him while he performed double duty. You know, as a, and some of the people that were in the Ku Klux Klan, some of the memberships thought that he was a benevolent white man that befriended my great-grandfather, and they shared an office for a brief time. He was a physician, and my great-grandfather was a dentist. But he was actually, you know, his grandmother was enslaved in Mississippi, so as fair as he was, he was 100% Black, you know, Mm -hmm. as far as sure that our community was safe. Pretty incredible to know. Great contributions. Yes. Yeah. You go through some of these uh, stories, I know, by trade, you're an interior designer. And uh, in addition to that, uh, you went back to school later in life uh, to focus on African-American studies. And um, tell me kind of what was the impetus to, to you know, spend some more formalized classroom time to, uh, to kind of round out all this great history and knowledge that you already have? Well, I think, you know, I, I've always wanted to be an architect and wasn't good at math. So I took the route. I still do pretty good in some math, so I can do the interior design stuff. And the history part of it is part of my DNA. If you understand my grandmothers, both grandmothers, and how much they fed me with our history, I feel like I know so much about my family history and Denver history, and my grandmother, Ernestine Smith, especially teaching me African dance, and teaching me about, about the, the stories of where these dances came from in different parts of Africa. So it was in my DNA. So it was just a matter of me, okay, I gotta, you know, it's just one day it's just confronting you and you've gotta go tackle it. And, and what a blessing for me to do that. So we went back to school for that. And um, I've been visiting the Black American West Museum since I was a teenager and knew some of the folks that worked at the museum. The chair of the board currently for the museum is Daphne Rice Allen. And she's been part of the museum for 30 years in some form or fashion. We grew up across the street from each other. And then I started an internship with the executive director while I was in school. So I got on the other side of what it was to, to run the museum. I continually visited and brought guests in to see it and in there a couple of times a year. It was a it was quite an eye-opening experience to see how the museum operated. And the fun part for me was when she asked if I wouldn't mind helping with presentations and talking about these stories because I grew up in it. So that's so much fun and enjoyable and it's spiritually filling for me. 
And so I've been doing that since 2008 and planning to do that until I can't get out of my, you know, I guess I'll probably even be telling a story and while they're trying to cremate me. <laughs> I love the attitude. L- let's talk about, um, you know, w- whether it's individuals you've learned more about since your time working and supporting the museum or, or folks that you've known before. L- let's dive deeper into a couple. So, um, you know, maybe share a couple of stories uh, for some other individuals uh, that would be worth uh, us hearing more about. Well, first and foremost, talking about the museum, we have to talk about Dr. Justina Ford. She's the as I mentioned, she's the first black woman licensed doctor in Colorado. And the museum is in her former home. Dr. Ford grew up, born in Knoxville, Illinois, grew up in Galesburg, Illinois, and then graduated from Herring Medical College in 1899. She was born January 22nd, 1871. And she married Reverend John Ford in 1892. When she graduated from Herring Medical College in Chicago, she and, and Dr. or Reverend Ford moved to Normal, Alabama, and she practiced a brief time there. He was called to minister here in Denver at Zion Baptist Church. And Zion Baptist Church was formally organized in 1865. It's one of the two oldest black churches in Colorado. The, the other one is Shorter AME Church. So Dr. Ford and Reverend Ford moved to Colorado, and he was the minister while she started getting her practice in place. Dr. Ford graduated, or she was granted her medical license October of 1902. She was also applied for membership to the Colorado Medical Society and they denied her membership. And the membership was required to have access to the hospitals. So she set up practice in her home and she, then the home that we have, she actually bought that home in 1911 and set up her practice there in 1911, but she'd been in practice for, for uh, nine years before she moved there. And she continued to practice until two weeks before she died. In, uh, she died October 14, 1952, but she was still taking care of her patients right up to her death. And in the course of 50 years, she attended the delivery of more than 7,000 babies more than 37 different nationalities and knew in the range of eight to 11 languages and dialects. And in addition to the 7,000 babies, she was taking care of their families too. So, so I don't think she really had a day off very often. She was quoted to say she delivered a baby on average one every three days for 50 years. Wow. But then she's also taking care of mama and daddy and sister and brother too. So sister was busy and she made such a major impact on our community that when her house was slated to be torn down in the early 1980s, the neighbors contacted our city councilman, Hiawatha Davis and Paul Stewart, who founded the museum, and they filed an injunction and were able to have the house moved from its former site at 2335 Arapahoe Street to its present site at 3091 California Street. And then Mr. Stewart moved the museum in there four years later after extensive renovation. So, or extensive restoration, I guess I should say it that way. And we've been there ever since. So she's the primary one that we have to talk about with our stories here. And then we have a laundry list of folks that are part of that story as well. Paul Stewart, have to celebrate him because he started this museum in 1971. He grew up in Clinton, Iowa, and as a little boy, playing cowboys and Indians. Sometimes he wanted to play the cowboy. His friends would tell him, there's no such thing as black cowboys. And again, that's what we're going 
to as the narrative. And in 1962, he came out here to visit his cousin, and they were walking in downtown Denver, and he met a black cowboy. And the man he met had a ranch north of Denver with cattle and horses, and he had a cowboy hat on and a bolero, and that really blew Mr. Stewart's mind. He was so excited about that. So he moved back to Denver a few years later and opened a barber shop over on East 34th Avenue and Elizabeth Street and started talking to the folks coming in to get their hair cut. And they'd tell them about their family stories. And then they started bringing artifacts and, and pictures and all kinds of things to exhibit in his barber shop. All that outgrew the barber shop. So he started the museum in 1971 at a place called Clayton College. And then he moved it to the basement of our fabulous, cool, Black radio station, KDKO, with Dr. Daddio. I got to say that Dr. Daddio was the bomb. People always surprised <laughs> me. had such a cool radio station here in Denver. So he was in the basement there for 15 years. And then Mr. Stewart moved the museum into Dr. Ford's former home once the house was restored in 1988. And we lost That's Mr. That's great. Now. Yeah, he, he died November 12, 2015. He was born December 18, 1925, and then died November 12, 2015, just a month shy of his 90th birthday. And boy, oh, do wow. we miss him. love him and miss yeah. him so much. Hmm. As you talk about some of these individuals and I guess the museum experience, let's pull out to um, some of your advice on what you see as some of the best museum artifacts. I mean, many of these objects are the inspiration to bring back memories and tell stories, but what what are some of the things in, in a museum that you think uh, really help kind of uh, pull people in and rediscover this rich history? We have some incredible photographs of people from that era, incredible photographs of things that they experienced or lived through. And Artifacts, including Dr. Ford's medical bag and saddles, these beautiful saddles with all of these intricate designs. We've got a sharpening wheel and we've got yokes hanging up on the walls that move the, the cows and the cattle with the wagons and a wagon wheel and this stand that has all these spurs. And we've got a buffalo skin coat and a, and a bear skin coat and buffalo soldiers uniforms and some of their equipment and their saddle that was modified by uh, after the Civil War and the Tuskegee Airmen artifacts and lockers and clothing and pictures of the Tuskegee Airmen and the Buffalo Soldiers all over and then a lot of the um, We've got stagecoach Mary, Mary Fields, and some of the folks, some other folks in Colorado, whether they were in the Five Points neighborhood or out west. I don't know if you've ever heard of Nat Love. I don't know if you've ever heard of Edward Cheatham, who was a 102-year-old black cowboy in South Central Colorado. And we have this picture of him. He's five foot two. He's got this great big handlebar mustache. And and I, and I always have to say this, this is my opinion, this has nothing to do with anybody else, but when you look back at history and how some of the media has interpreted some of our folks, like um, Betty Boop was a black dancer in New York, I always wonder in my own mind if somebody drew Yosemite Sam from Mr. Cheatham. And if you, I'll have to send you this picture, you get what I'm talking about. Beckworth, uh, Mr. Beckworth, 
there's uh, James Beckworth has the pass name for him between California and Nevada. And Goodnight Loving Trail, which was a popular trail for cattle to run from Texas to Colorado. And there's James Arthur Walker, and there's the Bill Pickett Invitational Rodeo, so William Pickett. And all of these other folks, my great-grandfather is in here, Dr. Westbrook is in here, George Morrison, some of the other jazz musicians are here, and some of the business owners in the Five Points neighborhood, including Lewis and Frederick Jr. Douglas. So Lewis and Frederick Jr. had a business. So everybody knows who Frederick Douglas, his sons had a mortuary here in Denver in the 1860s, and they were also civil rights advocates. We had a petition that over 100 men signed demanding the right to vote become part of Colorado's constitution when Colorado applied for statehood in 1864. And so both the pastors from Zion Baptist Church and Shorter AME Church and and the members of their church, those men signed this petition and Henry O. Wagner and some of the other folks, Barney Ford, signed this petition demanding the right to vote become part of our Constitution when we applied for statehood in 1864. We didn't get statehood till 1876, but it just, it just excites me to think that we had the wherewithal to fight for that before the 13th, 14th, or 15th Amendment. We yeah, were no, definitely. On that. Mm-hmm. Give me one more story someone unexpected that you've discovered on this journey that came from an unexpected place or just surprised you as you learn more about uh, an individual? Oh, boy, let's see. Let me pick one. So there's so many wonderful stories in here. I think one of them is Beatrice Boyer and her siblings and her dad lived in South Central Colorado in Sedalia, or uh, Salida, Coaldale area which is a small place on the map, but Beatrice Boyer was, she was something else as far as as everything she did, breaking horses and working on this ranch. And, you know, the, the things that we had in place on what women are supposed to do and men are supposed to do, they didn't have that in their family. That wasn't part of the issue. Their issue was everybody took care of everything. So if you had to run out and break a horse, Beatrice Boyer was up on that horse taking care of it. If you had to to corral the cattle, Beatrice Boyer is going to take care of that. And she was riding alongside with her brothers, doing everything to take care of their ranch that was required. You know, and, and so for me, the story about her is a testament to okay, so we're having some challenges with whether women can play basketball and get paid. We're having some challenges with women and their right to anything that they want to do. And and so me is inspiration for that. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Now, as I listen to all of this, I mean, you've dedicated a meaningful part of your life to uh, understanding and telling these stories and, uh, you know, con- contributing and giving back to your community. Why do you think that's so important for you? My grandkids, someday you'll have grandkids, maybe. All of our grandkids need to know who these people are. They need to know where they come from. 
They need to know how broad the shoulders are of the people that came before them and everything they did that they're here. Yeah. Honored to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I really deeply appreciate you sharing your story and all of this great people. I think part of the magic also is, you know, the ability to tie some of these individuals together, right? Is this, you know, sometimes I think just because of how uh, the media attempts to tell stories, there are these very isolated individuals that kind of stand on their own. But when you really understand the true history you see that it's a fabric. And many of these individuals across disciplines, across economic lines, uh, they're connected. And uh, when you kind of see that all come together, it's uh, it's that much more, I think, amazing. And I think that is really critical in uh, kind of understanding this is not just, you know, looking at these as individual people who were never connected to their community. And uh, I really appreciate you kind of shining a light on that and sharing some of these individuals today. Thank you. I appreciate that. Before we wrap up, Terry, I mean, it's great advice, right? To make sure children are investing in understanding where they came from and, uh, you know, talking to individuals who have these stories. What other advice would you give to the world, you know, from uh, the many stories and individuals that you've now kind of run across in your life? Well, I'm actually give a homework assignment. I love and it. Homework assignment is for anybody that's listening that their children, grandchildren interview their grandparents or interview someone that would be of their grandparents' age so they can learn a little bit about who they are. I think one of the unfortunate things is, with especially the way our communities are scattered, we don't have the high concentration of role models that we had when I was a kid. They're kind of scattered and you start losing yourself and you don't get a handle on that. So that's homework is each child needs to interview their grandparents or great aunts and uncles, great, great grandparents, their grandmother's best friend, if their grandmother's not available. So they can get a little understanding about the stories of that generation and that generation knows so much about the previous generations, they'll learn a lot. And that will help them understand who they are and give them a little bit more energy to move forward. I guess you can tell that with me and my grandparents and what they gave me and how much energy I have to, right. to move and pass that along. That's what I want to have happen is, is, is do that. That's homework. And I've got questions. If somebody's not sure, I can pass them on to you. <laughs> Excellent. It's one of those things that's, so easy to do, you know, it, it, there, there's nothing stopping someone to sit down and have a conversation. And so it's not just uh, great, great homework, but it's something that's very actionable and almost every one of us can, uh, can go tackle it. Well, you know, I really like a great history lesson, but this is like supercharged. Like you gave me a bunch of names. We're going to have to go back and dig through some of these and learn more. So that is fantastic. I really thank you for joining us today and sharing your story. It's, it's been my honor. I'm very humbled and appreciate you reaching out to me. Thank you so much. Excellent. Tell our listeners where they can find more about the museum online or if they wanted to visit in person. We're closed doing the coronavirus right now, but we're at BAWMHC.org, the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center in Denver, Colorado. We also have the Blair 
Caldwell African American Research Library that's six blocks up the street. So between the two of us, we we share and and try to highlight all of these stories. That's great. Well, thank you again, and thanks to everyone joining us today uh, with this fantastic history lesson with Terry. We hope you've enjoyed your time. Please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again, and remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.